What is going on, everybody? I am Greg Hellbeck, and my co-host, Michael Pinter, and I are bringing you another episode of the New York Real Estate Investing Show. This show is all about how to be successful in New York State, one of the best places and one of the most difficult places to do business in. And each and every week, Michael and I are going to bring awesome content to everybody who wants to learn how to do this business successfully in New York. Between the both of us, we have done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deals. We've made millions of dollars and we've also made a ton of mistakes. So if you wanna try your best to avoid those mistakes, definitely take a listen to this podcast. Every single week, we are gonna provide actionable, tactical steps on how you can be successful investing in the Empire State of New York. Stay tuned and welcome to the show. All right, today's show is gonna be about losing money, fixing and flipping houses and what to do if you wanna learn how to lose money. And I'm gonna start the show off <laughs> with, with the principles of losing money on flips. I made an Instagram live about this last week in my hot tub or in the hot tub, it's not mine. There's other residents who use it. You buy in areas you're not familiar with, or you don't buy properties you're familiar with, i.e. if you're a house flipper, you buy a commercial property or a mobile home park. The second is you just pay too much for the property, right? That's the second principle that's uh, evergreen. The third principle is your rehab goes wrong, i.e. the budget is over budget or the contractor does bad work. And then the fourth, just you know, absolute kiss of death is when you try to sell the property for more money than it's probably worth, aka you misprice the property because you quote unquote want to make some money and the marketplace smacks you in the ass with a ruler and you cry your way to the bank to write a check. So those are the four pillars of losing money on flips. Michael, what are your thoughts on that? Because I, I've really thought about this a lot. I think you're absolutely right. Every single deal I've lost money on fit one of those four for sure. I'd say until recently, every deal I bought, the last one where I mispriced it and it was all due to the same reason. Like I spent too much time and too much money on the flip and therefore I priced it based on what I wanted to make instead of what I really thought the market would would bear. And there was one period of time, right, when I switched from doing a lot of flips to, to wholesale really, where I lost money on three properties, not a lot, like $20,000 each. And they were all because I mispriced them. And if I would have priced them right, I probably would have made a little money on one and broken even on two because it just takes so long when you misprice it and you don't want to give in to the fact that you're over on it. So very important that you never price a deal based on how much you're into it for, because the buyers oh. don't give a shit and nobody gives a shit. In this case, I, I wanted to show some investors a decent return, but that was stupid. We should have just broken even or made a drop of money and been, been done. It was me thinking, let's price it higher and try and stretch. And that is always a mistake. Oh, it's a I, I'm going to lose money on something right now because I paid too much for it for the circumstances. Do you want me to talk about that? Yeah. So let's just get into a real deal. So let's, let's get into it. This is the one in Mineola, right? Sure. Yeah. So I bought this deal and the number I bought it for would have made sense if it was vacant. And I, I'm not really understanding what I was thinking, but it wasn't vacant. I had a tenant who I thought was going to leave quickly because he seemed like a good guy and he immediately started paying rent, but he stayed for about a year and, and he was paying rent. So I was making, I think $2,900 a month in rent. The problem was that I was paying my, my interest accruing and my taxes were probably six to $7,000 a month. So I'm losing money every single month. And he just left. And of course, I thought it was in better shape than it was. So it needed a little bit of work, some cosmetic work. And now I listed it. And I, even if I sell it for my asking price, which I may not, I am going to probably have to bring a check to the closing, which always stinks. So let's unpack that. First things first, what did you pay for the house? 607 and what is the estimated sales price? I have a list of for six ninety nine. It's probably I think I think it could sell for six ninety nine. Yeah. I think it's seven hundred house. So let's call it six hundred on the buy, seven hundred on the projected sell. 
So we did a podcast episode last time about kind of like the spreads that you got to look for when you're analyzing deals. And generally the rule of thumb, like you were probably thinking originally is, Hey, you know, if I can buy this thing with a hundred K gross spread between the as is value and the buy price, usually in our market, that's a 40, $50,000 profit when you absorb the soft costs. Right. So the truth is, as I'm thinking about it at that price point at 600, I really should have gotten $150,000 for it. So yeah, I screwed this one up royally. As I look back, I'm really wondering what I was thinking. You probably just wanted to buy the house. They got another house and that house I offered, I thought I was going to get both. I didn't get that one. I just really, I really wasn't thinking it was a year ago. My, I'm, I was still coming out of my COVID fog, I guess, because I should never have paid what I paid for it. It's a lot. It's a lesson, right? You either win or you learn. We, we learn lessons from all our losses. As you said so brilliantly, I think yesterday is that we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. So this one's going to definitely stick with me for a while because I am not going to make this mistake hopefully ever again. Sometimes you only learn the lessons in real estate investing when you actually get punched in the face. And people do not want to hear that because there's so many people online talking about like, oh, we're just, we're, we're crushing it. Or this guy's killing it. They got 40, like whatever. And like, I'm sure that's so easy. It's so easy. There's no risk. A monkey can do it. Anybody. Whoa. Well, especially now in the market we're in, like we're in a real real estate market where you can't get away with being an idiot. Like back in 2021, 2022, before the year was like halfway done in 2022, you could be a complete dumbass and buy a property from a wholesaler at an inflated number. And by the time you're done with that house, it went up 40 grand of value. So your stupid break even just made you 40K. And then you think that feedback loop tells you you're really smart. And then you keep doing that. So I've seen in this market now, like if you don't price your property right or you overpay, you're really going to experience the penalties of that because you're not going to get bailed out by the market. Sure, the market's still strong. There's still demand. Absolutely. But it's not rising like it was in 2021 because people are paying 7 8% for a loan. So you know it's harder to wholesale now because buyers are a little bit more picky on what they're buying, which is understandable because I don't blame them, right? So- Here's an example on me losing some money on a property, not the current one, but the one, the mixed use one. So long story short, I bought a property and this is like, I broke rule number one is buying a property I didn't understand. I have done a bunch of houses and condos and shit, two families. And then I found a three unit property with a commercial space. So it was a big glorified mixed use building. And it was in a kind of a, not a shitty area, but a shitty location where like, it was not great for a commercial space, like storefront. It was like in between two like country roads, basically. And I paid actually a good number for the property. Like it, I remember when I bought it, like my attorney was like, oh, you got a really good deal here. And I was like, thanks, man. And then it got appraised because I had to get the hard money and it came in like the fours and I bought it for 265. So I was like, oh shit. I think it came in at 450 actually. It was a great buy. And my plan was to get the commercial space leased up to like a retail tenant. And then once that was- I remember this one. I remember you talked to me about this one for sure. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm going to get a retail tenant inside the store and get some rent. It was like a thousand a month was my, like kind of what I was thinking of. I was going to be able to get for it. And then I have three apartments I could lease up at will. So we tried to, I'll definitely, I'll definitely find a retail tenant. Yeah. In the I'm like, and then I'll be burned <laughs> out and I'll just cash flow it. So, you know, that retail tenant thing didn't work out. And then once that didn't work out, I realized I had a glorified three family on my hands that I kind of overpaid for. I still had to rehab it too. Like I had to do work on this thing. At the end of the day, I didn't understand that the retail demand for this area was shit. And it's, really a residential area. So the best thing I could have done was two things. And the guy who I sold it to did this, converted into like an office space, which he did as like a little shared space now. Or if I really wanted to, which is not as easy when you're on a septic tank, is turn it into an apartment and then have it be a four unit property. And then you could sell that down the line with just like regular residential financing. But in order to convert it, I mean, you got to get the town involved. You got to change the use of the building. You got to do all this bullshit. You got to go to the meetings. It's just not really worth it. So I decided to just lease the three units up and keep the store vacant. 
And then I ended up selling that property. I think I lost maybe like five or 10K. It wasn't anything catastrophic, but the drama that unfolded with this thing and like there was all these problems and, you know, the tenants got sick and then like, it was just really fucking hairy. So the lesson I learned was, especially if you're going to go into your first like different asset class, like don't buy an old building in a sketchy location where there's not certainty, right? Like if, if it was in a downtown area, like 100%. Street, Main Street, any town USA, and you could get a retail tenant in there in a second. Yeah, it would have been a no brainer. But this thing was like kind of a no man's land in between two towns. I, one of the biggest mistakes I find new people that are wholesaling do is they lock up a property in the middle of freaking nowhere. I cannot tell oh. you how many times I get calls because I'm on social media as the New York guy. And I get a, a town in New York, New York that's guy. like in the Finger Lakes region that's got a population of 20 that the biggest city is some city I've never heard of that's two hours away. If you're in areas that are not heavily populated, do not try to wholesale deals. And and as Greg will tell you, do not think you're going to have find it easy to get a commercial tenant if there's no traffic there. Yeah, the intersection was a T. So there's a busy road going one way and then there's another road ending. And then I own the parking lot too that came with the deal and it was like a shit parking lot. And it was just like the worst area. You have to cross this busy road from the parking lot. It was just so screwed up. And I'm like, what city? What city is that? So the property was in Salisbury Mills, which is really in between Washingtonville and New Windsor. So it's in a good area where it's expensive. It's just too far. No one wants to have a storefront or anything like that there where if it's not close to everything. And the building was built in like the late 1800s or early 1900s. So it had all these problems that came with it that I, I just, and there was another thing. And then I'll shut up about this deal before I start crying. If I would have known this in advance, I could have probably wholesaled this out for 20 or 30K at least. So the property, because of where it was, it wasn't on a city sewer, right? Because in the middle of nowhere. So it was on a septic tank, but there was no leach field because the property backed up to a creek. So the, I think it was What's the a, Creek. Tell everybody what a leach field is. A leach field is basically a system where the septic drains into and it drains into the soil and it allows, you know, the septic to work properly. But when you have a property and there's no land behind it or on the side of it to where the leach field can bleed into, you know, you have to think otherwise. So the way that the old owner did it and he did it all legally was there was a pipe sticking out of the building, out of the septic tank. And there was a special system. I think it was called like the neurotic something system that would process the waste. And then it was legally via the DPA allowed to be dumped into this body of water. So I didn't know that. And thankfully it was working and I, I was in compliance with it, but that just adds red tape to any deal. Because if that thing breaks, then you got to get the state involved and that system's 30 grand. And there's probably not that many people who know how to fix it. Like there was a lot of like little things that I didn't know about the deal. Cause I was just so interested in buying it. Cause I wanted to be a commercial property buyer. It's just, I would have never learned that unless I bought that deal. So I'm grateful that it happened, but you really got to figure out, especially if you're new, like I know there's people online making money in apartments and mobile home parks and self-storage. You got to pick one thing. I would pick houses to start because if you can understand houses and get good at houses and make some money doing houses, it's going to be easier to transition into other asset classes. If you want to do that in the future, there's something Alex Hermosi says that I really love. And he's like, I see a lot of people, they start these businesses and they completely suck. And they think that it's the business itself that sucks, but it's really them who suck. And they think that just because they go from being a single family home flipper to an apartment building owner, they're going to magically get rich, but they can't even figure out how to solve their problem as a single family home investor. And I'm like, I remember listening to that and I'm like, man, that is so true. I see so many people doing this and that's why they lose money. Absolutely. It's always, you know, you, you got to have accountability. It, the number one difference, I think, between the people that are successful and the people who aren't successful, successful besides persistence is 
accountability that the people who are successful say, you know, it's wherever I am, I'm responsible for it. It's so easy. And 99% of the world blames every one of the problems on everything external, right? I'm not this, I'm not that, man, it keeps me down, all that crap. But like, if you just take responsibility for what you have, so if your business isn't working, you got to accept why. There was a period of time where I was buying businesses a long time ago. And I saw the same thing. I saw these older guys, a lot of them in, you know, 1980s businesses, and they all felt that like all it would take was some young guy to to start doing sales and I'll change the business. And it really wasn't. The business was falling apart because, you know, the industry had changed dramatically. So people like to blame their problems on the external factors. But the truth is you're 100% right. If the business isn't working, you got to fix yourself before you can fix the business. 100%. 100%. I just see this with people, like especially new people, because we speak to a lot of newbies. I'm sure you get more than I do. It's like they don't understand. And this does relate to losing money because you're going to lose money if you don't get a deal either. Like they don't understand that if they don't have a marketing budget, especially in New York, they need to have a time budget. And if they don't have a marketing budget, they're never going to have success. So they have to accept both- the fact. And in New York, because the cost conversion cycle is so long, you need a it needs a lot, right? You need a lot of time and a lot of more money because it's going to be a long slog between the time that you spend money on marketing and when you get paid on it. People don't get it. People don't get it. And even like with my story, like I didn't have a big marketing budget, but I had a big time budget. And that is what allowed me to get in the door, right? And I see some people who are the opposite. Like they have a job, they're making money and they are not willing to spend $2,000 a month on marketing that will work over time. When they're making eight grand a month and they can actually afford that. The thing with this business that really tripped me up and it was hard for me to accept in the beginning was that everyone thinks we're in the real estate business, but we're really just, we're in the marketing and sales business. And that's not that sexy for a lot of people because if all the gurus were like, you're in the sales and marketing business, people wouldn't buy their shit. 100%. And there are people who inherently feel like something that's in the sales and marketing business is not what they want to do. I want to be a real estate mogul. I don't want to be a salesman. That's disgusting. But you're 100% right. And it took me forever to realize that. And the truth is, the first four years I was in the business, I wasn't doing sales and marketing because I was buying at auctions and, and and just got renovating everything. But I couldn't grow the business until I realized that I was in the sales and marketing business and started yeah. marketing direct to seller. And it's a whole other skill set you got to learn. So I see this with people all the time and they just don't under, they, they, they're not willing to commit to getting good at marketing, which is not easy, but it's not like impossible either. Our business is harder to get referrals because of the type of customer we work with. Like obviously you could get them and they're there, but like with a plumbing business, for example, like, oh, I use this plumber on my house. Well, the next neighbor needs the plumber and then his neighbor's cousin needs the plumber. And then it's like, how many people are going to sell their house below market value compared to how many people are actually going to need a plumber to unclog their toilet? Like it's such a different kind of like total addressable market. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so back to losing money on flips. So here's another big way to get screwed when you're doing houses. And I'm going to not going to name names here because that's not who I am. But if you have a bad indirect team, not saying your internal team, I'm not talking about your acquisitions person, your lead manager. I'm, I'm talking about if you have a bad external team, you are going to get smoked because everything is going to start to unwind. So I had a property where I had a bad external team. And because the team on the outside, i.e. the realtors, were bad, right? Which is my fault because I'm the one who chose to work with them. The entire deal unraveled at the 11th hour when it didn't need to. It could have been prevented. But the fortunate part of that was I aligned myself with a good team about a week later, or not even a week later, like three days later. And we ended up making more money on that flip than we would have if we had the bad team on our side. And the reason I'm saying team is because I'm just going to mention real estate agents too. I'm I'm just going to mention, I'm not going to mention names, but this is what I've realized. 
when you have an incompetent real estate agent who truly doesn't know what they're doing on the listing agent side, and then you can couple that up with a really bad buyer's agent who doesn't know what they're doing, who has bad intentions, it is almost a guarantee your deal is not going to close. What? Because you, you're a broker, so you you know this probably better than me. I mean, I've just seen yes. this firsthand how fucked up it is when you work for bad people. Listen, my first hire and one of my most crucial employees is my disposition manager for that exact reason, right? She's going to be the one selling it. She's the one who deals with these crazy buyers, agents, and crazy buyers. But, you know, I know guys, what's his name? Ted Snyder, you know, the guy, oh, yeah. great guy. He buys nationwide and basically says he always finds a, a realtor and trust them. And I'm like, I don't know how you do it because my experience has been most realtors are going to say anything to get the deal done, right? They don't care. So they'll tell you, they'll inflate prices, they'll do anything. But, you know, he maybe he has a good sense of picking them out and finding the better ones. I remember he called me with a deal in Long Island once and I'm like, I don't know about those numbers at all. And he's like, yeah, I didn't get a good feeling from the agent. I'm like, I think she's full of shit. So if you're going to go... In an area you don't know and rely on an agent who you don't know, you've got to understand that there is a more than likely chance that that agent, assuming nobody referred them to you, is going to say anything they can to get the deal done and will say things that may or may not be true. So you have to be very careful. But it doesn't just apply to real estate agents. It applies to anyone. Attorney can screw up a deal. An inspector can screw up a deal. An appraised title company for sure can screw up a deal. An appraiser can screw up a deal. All these things. So sometimes you get to pick those service providers. Sometimes you don't. Certainly a contractor can screw up your deals really fast. So as you said, you need to have a team you rely on. And I get, I probably get asked, how, to, how do I find a co good contractor 10 times a week? And there isn't a great answer for me anyway. I don't, I don't have a great answer. And I tell people, you meet, you're probably going to have to go through some bad ones to get to good ones. And what I found when I was really doing a lot of rehabbing back in 2013, 14, 15, is sometimes the contractor will be great on one job, but then you give them two jobs and they turn bad. Sometimes the contractor will be good for two jobs and you give them three jobs and they cannot, they cannot juggle three balls in the air at once. So- and you almost have to be resolved that whenever you're building your team, you may have to find people that aren't great unless you can find somebody you trust to recommend. So like you or I can recommend people in the areas we know we're a good resource. So to pick somebody out of the hat is usually not a good plan because these Bad team idea. members are going to be crucial to you being profitable or not profitable. That's where I see the big fuck ups with rehabs is with the bad contractor. And I think it would make sense for us to touch on that. I just wrapped up working with a bad contractor and I've just also wrapped up working with a good contractor who I've had a relationship with for years. The difference between a good contractor and a bad contractor is obviously so big. It will sink your ship if you have the wrong contractor. So I'll tell you about the bad contractor real quick. Not only, and not my fault, I hired the guy, so I'm not you know, crying over spilt milk. He basically said, I'll get this done at a reasonable price. You got to give me more time than I'd like. So I said, okay, when do you think you'll be done by? He said, July 1st. I said, okay, that's fair. That's six weeks. Not only did he finish on July 24th, right? Which is over three weeks over. He did horrible work, terrible quality, cut corners left and right, like a complete Neanderthal. And then now we're trying to sell this piece of shit. And the main problem is not the price. It's the work inside the house looks like hell. So not only did I have to pay this jerk off, I shouldn't have, I should have smoked him on the back end and just held him accountable, but I didn't. I paid yeah, but you, he, would, he would have put a lead on it probably if he's licensed. It's not worth That's it. That's true. Anyway, his failure. So one team member's failure in the system is blocking the objective from becoming real and selling the house. So now we have to isolate that issue and say, okay, what are the issues you'd like us to fix in order for you to move forward? And it's like, that could have been prevented by good work with a good contractor. So- you have sure. to make sure these guys are getting held accountable to good standards. And like, we didn't even do a crazy rehab. We did a kitchen. We did fucking, well, we did almost a whole kitchen. We didn't do the cabinets like usual. We did a half a bathroom. 
We didn't that's, do- not a, that's not almost the whole kitchen if you're leaving the cabinets. I'd say it's already – cabinets are like more than a third of the kitchen. So we – yeah. So we did – Half a kitchen. Half a kitchen. We did half a bathroom. We did paint. We did floors. We did sewer. Like we didn't gut this thing to the studs. And I knew that deal I was going to get fucked on. Like the second we closed, I was like, yo, I'm losing money on this. I just knew. Like I knew I was screwed on that. house. Like I just knew the numbers. I'm like, there's no way this is going to work out in my favor. But – I guess I'm accurate with that. And that's why I tell new investors, like, I don't know about rehabbing right off the bat. Like, I would do a wholesale deal before you do a rehab. I just... I have students who ask me on rehab deals, you know, this is this good for my first rehab? If it's really liked, I'll tell them yes. But if it's not, I would say they got to be careful because the more work there is, the more chance there is to get screwed over something, to miss something, to come over budget, more money, more time, and all those things. And those things just compound. So you have to be careful. So... I wouldn't do a big job. It's easier no. to do smaller jobs. No, I would. I think my first rehab was like a little light rehab where it wasn't, it was maybe $20,000 or something. And that got me some confidence on how to work with contractors. And then I started doing bigger stuff. But I, I just don't think that business model is very scalable if you're doing gut rehabs on every house. Like if you want to do like 80 flips a year and gut renovate every house, that just seems to me like there's so many more ways to make money than do that. For sure. You can probably do one at a time over three months and you jump on top of it in your spare time, it's doable. But if you're going to do like a million, it's very hard. I feel like new construction would be easier to scale. As crazy as it sounds, you're probably right because new construction is more formatted. You follow the same formula. It's more formulaic. I mean, so like you can do that, especially if you're building multiple houses at a time. With Every rehab is different, right? Well, I used to say, and I still believe it, one of the hardest things to do on a rehab is decide what needs to be done and what doesn't need to be done. You know, we all dream that every rehab we're going to get into is just this mess and it has to be knocked down. But very often there are things that are salvageable, right? There's a bathroom that's not bad. There's a bit, there's, you know, a kitchen cabinets are okay. And deciding whether to keep it or not. Some guys come in and they, they just take a sledgehammer to all of it. I think it's stupid. I used to do that. I think it's ridiculous. So sometimes you go in there and you got to think, you know, because of that, that means that the whole process is different, right? Your contractor has to know, don't touch that bathroom. Everybody has to know that. So there's no formula to it. It's different every time. Yeah, that's that's where it gets so – and then like another thing too is like if you rehab a cape, that's going to be a lot different than rehabbing a big Tudor prop. Like there's just so many fucking things that, that – Sure, like- and, the area, and the area you're in will determine what finishes you need, right? So like there are guys who go, I use the same thing every place. I'm like you – know, I guess there are cities like that where everything is similar. Dallas. But by me, I might do a, a rehab that's going to that's gonna sell retail for a million, and I might do a rehab that's going to sell retail for 400. You think I'm going to do the same finishes? That's crazy. That's like in San Diego. It's like, yeah, you're going to do a house in La Jolla and, and sell for $5 million, or you're going to do a house in Chula Vista and sell for six seventy five. Like, oh, you're going to put the same finishes in that? 100%. It's not the same. And, and it's nice to think that there's the same formula to it. When I got into the business, I wanted to be Tarek Al Musa. He does – every freaking one of his houses looks exactly the same. I was like, this is great. I'm going to do the same thing. But the truth is, is the world is not as it seems on TV. A hundred percent. And especially in New York, because in California, there are a lot more track homes where you can kind of get away with that easier than you can in New York. Like in, in Long Island, in the Hudson Valley, like we get lead, like we just got a lead today in Kingston built in 1860 or 1890. Right. Like, how do I figure that rehab budget out? That was in one of the Civil War battles. I think you'll find some you'll find some musket, uh, some musket rounds in the walls there. Yeah, right. <laughs> It's just crazy. Like even in like actually Reno is an interesting place. Like there's some older houses in Reno and there's actually some older houses in San Diego in like certain areas. Like they're like in the 1900s and it's kind of crazy to see on like the West Coast, like where that is. But like Texas and Florida, you're never going to find that. Like everything's built after 1980, pretty much everything there. 
Yeah, Texas. Delaware's got some old, you know, like the the cities on the like Baltimore, Philadelphia, Wilmington, Delaware, Pittsburgh. There's there's a lot of older. You get just get older cities. Here's another quick nugget to losing money as we just give everyone the farm here. Don't rehab old houses. I, I'm okay. talking like 1900 or less. Don't even rehab them. Just wholesale them. Yeah, before 1900. It's true. One of the one of the houses I lost money on was a pre nineteen hundred yeah. house, and it there was more to it. It was a nightmare. Yeah, you're dealing with something that's so old and so expensive to fix. A lot of the times, depending on where it is, it's like you might as well just knock it down. It's just so also cool. low ceilings, low 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 windows, like weird weird things that you didn't count on that people come in and say, "What's going on here?" You just opened up a can of worms. This is another nugget for everyone here. This is a practical class here. Funk factor. I remember when I first got started, people would talk about the funk word, funk factor. It's a funky house. And I'm like, what do you mean by funky house? I remember Larry would explain this to me. And it's like, when you go into a property and there's all, these are definitely all in Long Island too. You see like a bedroom where you have to get, so if there's two bedrooms and if you have to get, go through one bedroom to get to the next bedroom, that's a funky probably We call that a railroad. That's style. a ra- railroad, right? That small bathrooms, small, like when the stairs are like, I, I looked at a house up in Dutchess last year. And like, I remember the stairs were really steep to get upstairs. It was like this old Cape on this big lot. Like you want to stay away from properties that are funky because if you think it's funky, 100%. that retail buyer is going to think, cause what they're going to do is they're going to take your funky house that's fixed up and they're going to compare it to another house that might not be as nice as yours, but it won't be as screwed up. And that funk factor is just going to drop your value down because you're going to have to sell that property for less money. So that's another big thing I would stay away from if you're if you're trying to not lose money on rehabs. You want to stay away from things that are different. Now you you really only need one buyer to like it, but if if most of the buyers are not going to like it, get out of there. It's just not going to sell as fast, and you're probably going to sell it for less. You're definitely going to sell it for less. I and even like another another thing, as you mentioned this, you're opening up a can of worms. Busy roads, busy roads, double yellows. That's another thing you got to take ten to fifteen percent of that ARV off if you're on a double yellow. Because you think about it, a family's moving in there. They don't want their kids playing in the yard when there's cars going by 40 miles an hour. So busy roads. Exactly. I used to stay away from them, but I buy them now. But I, you got to, like you said, I take 10 to 15% off figuring. And sometimes I sell them for full price, but you got to be careful. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the biggest thing between residential and commercial. It's like in residential, you're thinking about how the consumer is going to look at it, not the NOI, right? Like a, a rental property yeah. on a busy street, I haven't found that to be big of an issue, at least from my experience. Have you? I haven't seen it really make a difference. No, 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 no. It doesn't. It doesn't really matter, but that's how you lose money on houses. So if you guys want to really, you have a you have a perfect blueprint on how to lose money. On yes, <laughs> all you need to do if you never want to lose money on a house is listen to this forty-five minute podcast. And don't do anything we said that you shouldn't. And do. <laughs> don't do anything we said. So to summarize, the four pillars of losing money: buying in areas you don't understand, or buying properties you don't understand, overpaying for properties, working with a bad contractor, and selling the house for less than you think it was going to sell for. If you get even one of those four things screwed up, you could probably lose. If you get four out of four, good night, Jim Kite, you're done. Don't buy funky houses. Don't buy on busy streets. Work with good contractors. If you have a bad team, you are going to have bad results. I'm going to coin that phrase. You got a bad team, you're going to have bad results. So hopefully you got value from this episode. If you did, give us a review on the web on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. If you're on YouTube, like the video, and we will see everybody on the next podcast show.